Our reading this morning is from the book of Ruth. We'll be finishing our series today in Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said... I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of your, the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And when the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi, they called him, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, 
Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. Good. If you would, just bow your heads as we prepare to hear from God's word this morning. Father God, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you for all that you've revealed in it. And Lord, we thank you most of all for the incredible testimony it is to your faithfulness, not just to the people, even in this story, but throughout the ages. We pray, God, that you would give us this perspective this morning and that you would help us to see how your faithfulness throughout the ages intersects with our life and how your faithfulness, which is surprisingly sweet and can be trusted always, ought to change the way we live our lives here and now. Do this, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Where is God? What is God doing? And how are we supposed to know? Sometimes, even in the sweetest times in life, these questions can be very difficult to answer uh, because he hardly ever just speaks to us in an audible way. He, he, he doesn't show up in a cloud of smoke. <laughs> it, it, it's hard to see as if he is even intervening sometimes in our lives. And so maybe even life is going well, that's great, but is it really God who is making it go so well? On the other hand, when life is particularly challenging and all we can see seems to be suffering in our life, these questions, these same questions can be downright crippling. Sometimes life goes so terribly, it's almost a bit unsettling, if we're honest, that there is a God. Uh, like Naomi from chapter 1, we tend to think, well, if he's there, he must be dealing harshly with me. His hand must be against me for some reason. I think we can all agree that it would be great if somehow we could just tell beyond a shadow of a doubt where God has been and what God has been up to in our lives. Even better, it would be if we, once we could tell, we were surprised by how pleasant and sweet the news was. This book is meant to give us that kind of surprisingly sweet reassurance. More than anything, the book of Ruth helps us to think well about God's activity in our lives, how to discern God's activity in our lives. But in a way, it also gives us hope when we cannot discern God's activity in our lives. Somehow, for some reason, we know this book is meant, it's written to and for the entire nation of Israel. But so far, we're just three chapters deep into this very complicated story of Naomi and Ruth, two Israelite women. It's, it's not entirely clear what this has to do with the entire nation of Israel. Naomi was an Israelite woman who fled to Moab, a foreign land, during a famine with her husband and her two sons. Ruth is Naomi's younger Moabite foreigner, daughter-in-law, uh, who married into the family and uh, marrying one of her sons. But then we read, of course, all the men in this family died, and it left these two women with very few options. And so Naomi decided to basically turn back, to return to God and his people, and Ruth decided to come with her. And we saw in chapter 1 that there was something spiritual to this 
decision that she made to come back. God seemed to be at work here because even in chapter one, she said to Naomi, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Seems like some activity of God is, God is doing something in Ruth. And since then, we've seen through a number of otherwise inexplicable conveniences that God has sovereignly guided Ruth to a man named Boaz, a man who just so happens to be qualified to redeem this entire situation. Last week, Naomi sent Ruth on a mission to offer herself in marriage to Boaz, but it, it didn't quite go as planned. Rather than sealing the deal, if anything, things got a bit more complicated last week. Boaz explained that there was another man who had a greater, higher right to redeem the family, that he couldn't go around. So after all of these signs along the way that have been pointing us to Boaz as the great redeemer here, this here, that detail, it's almost as if it's an inexplicable inconvenience. Really? I mean, after all of that, is this other guy going to swoop in and, and redeem? But Boaz did promise, remember, that one way or another, he said, as the Lord lives, he would see to it that they were redeemed. After hearing this, Naomi had faith, and she said to Ruth, wait my daughter, it's the last thing we heard, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, our passage today comes, takes place that very same morning when Ruth returned to Naomi after spending the night at the threshing floor with Boaz. And so here we are as the reader, just waiting to see how all these dots are going to connect more than that, we are waiting to see what this book will mean for the nation of Israel, not to mention for us. And I have to tell you, if all we are expecting this morning is to learn how Ruth and Naomi are redeemed, we will be shocked and surprised by the end with what we find in this book. And so Bible's open. If you haven't had them open already, we're going to walk through this story together now in two scenes. And what we're really going to keep our eye on here is, again, where is God in this story? Where has he been? What has he been doing? That's what we want to try and unearth. The first scene we see is basically kind of a legal proceeding that takes place at the city gate. It's basically an estate hearing about Naomi's possessions, everything that belonged to her family. So it says in the beginning, Boaz is sitting at the gate of the city and behold, it's almost like ta-da, right? Almost one of these inexplicable conveniences here. This, the same other guy that he just mentioned yesterday happens to walk right by. And he says, sit down. And Boaz calls a formal legal meeting here and includes the elders and the townspeople in this meeting. What he's doing, Boaz, is he's basically setting up a scenario that removes any possibility of doubt or suspicion with whatever would come as a result of this. And he also, we will see, is maneuvering himself into the best possible position to be the redeemer of Naomi and Ruth. Look with me, if you would, at verses 3 and 4. Then he, Boaz, said to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I, I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it. In the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know 
for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And then this man, this, we'll call him other, other guy, says, I will redeem it. He wants it. And everyone at the gate hears him that day. So on one hand, Boaz is very publicly putting himself in a position to possibly lose the right, even, to redeem this altogether. On the other hand, uh, he's also set this up so that if he does wind up redeeming it at the end, there will be no room for doubt or suspicion. He did not go around this man whatsoever. This man had every opportunity to, to, to pursue his right of redemption. Then as soon as he offers, says, I want to buy it, uh, Boaz adds a, a pretty important detail. In verses 5 and 6, he says, Well, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the, the widow of the dead, uh, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Just so you know, right? And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, chances are, Boaz saved this little detail for the very end of his conversation on purpose, uh, hoping that he might bite at the opportunity and then take it back, uh, even, even again to remove any further suspicion. Uh, and also, chances are, he has included Ruth's status as a Moabite at the very end of these dealings in order to basically scare off this other guy from moving forward and proceeding. It would have been a highly controversial thing to sort of take a Moabite into your family line. It would have been all, all the more if there's an expectation that you are going to have children with that Moabite. So he sufficiently complicates the situation. I want you to notice there's no magic being employed here. Uh, there's no divine intervention, just wisdom, maybe a bit of shrewdness in his dealings. And by the end of this hearing, not only is Boaz free to redeem Ruth, but now he even has the permission of this other man to do it, which yet again highlights a theme here of the certainty of Boaz's redemption. There is just no way anyone could have questioned what took place here. And, and then flowing from here, we see a whole series of very public confirmations of everything that happened, which even further suggests this idea. This was certain. This could not be questioned whatsoever. First, you have this whole shoe thing, the sandal thing, which we just really don't know or understand why that would have happened or, or what would have happened. Frankly, chances are the original readers of the book of Ruth wouldn't even even understood it, which is why the author feels that compelled to explain it here. This is how the custom in former times in Israel went concerning redeeming and exchanging. But here's the key. To confirm a transaction, this is what took place. The one drew off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting, confirming in Israel. This is what took place. Then Boaz puts every single person there on the hook for what just took place. He says to the elders and all the people, he says, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. There's a lot of detail here, right? All of that just happened. We understand. And he says, you are witnesses this day. In other words, don't forget what just happened here. 
This was legitimate, and it depends on your witness. Then, in response, all the people who were there, including the elders of this town, confirm this. They say, we are witnesses. <laughs> and then they ask God to bless Boaz's house in the same way he does has in the past for many of God's people. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel, who together built up the house of Israel, Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Here again, God has not intervened in any surprising or miraculous ways there in the moment. And yet everyone fully is aware of what's happening here. And each step of the way, everyone is attributing what happened there and even what will happen in the future to the Lord. This redemption was certain. It was irrefutable. It was ordinary in many, many ways. And it was all God's doing. This is what we see in this hearing, and we move on to our second scene. We don't know where it happened, maybe back at home after the hearing, but what we're meant to see in this second scene is a, a whole series of very surprising and surprisingly sweet reversals. All these things are the res result of what God has done here. First, we get an update. Boaz and, and Ruth get married. They have a son. Notice it says the Lord gave her conception. He's active. He's doing this. Some translations say he enabled her to conceive. He's doing it. The author says, then the women said to Naomi, and now if you're just joining us today, you might think, well, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? What, what women? What are we talking about here? And, and certainly we should presume that these women here at the gate of the city or right around the story of the gate of the city are the same women who received Naomi when she first came back to Bethlehem with Ruth, broken in total despair, and it even says they met her at the gate of the city. So we should presume these are the same women from chapter 1. And it's in these exchanges with the women, they praise God for a number of blessings, but what we're supposed to notice is all the, the sweet reversals that are happening because of what God has done here. For example, back in chapter 1, Remember, Ruth and Naomi had no redeemer. Uh, Naomi told these women that God had brought her back to Israel empty. Uh, but here, those same women say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. You're not empty anymore. And may his name be renowned in Israel, not denounced like it was the day you showed back up. It's reversed. Back in chapter 1, Naomi did not think Ruth should even come back with her. She lamented how old she was and how she could not offer any help to Ruth. Remember, she, Ruth was even standing next to her when she said she was empty, even though she had this daughter-in-law with her. But then here, these women say, the Lord shall be to you a restorer of life and, and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. In, in other words, look, Naomi, you thought you showed up having lost a husband and two sons, and that was all that was going on. Well, turns out because you had Ruth with you, you gained more than seven sons. It's been reversed. Back in chapter 1, Naomi lamented the fact that she was too old to get remarried, let alone to have children. 
And even if she did have children, she said, what would these daughters-in-law of hers do? Were they going to wait for those babies to grow up so they could marry those babies? She had no clue there might be a redeemer for her here. She also assumed that everything rested on her. And if God was going to fix or redeem this, it would have to be somehow through, through her being the one to have children. Then here, she takes Ruth's son, her grandson, and she nurses him as if this little boy is hers. Naomi's name means sweet or pleasant. But back in chapter 1, she told these very women at this gate to call her a different name, which means bitter, because at the time she could only attribute to God suffering. Well, then here it is these same women who are the ones that name her, her grandson, which is a very strange thing. You would expect, never expect that to happen unless there's a point here, and they happen to name him Obed, which means servant of the Lord. In other words, Naomi, see, the Lord did get your name right. Even though you couldn't see his sweetness back then, and now your grandson will serve him. You see this? Every step of the way, the point seems to be you wouldn't have guessed it would go this way, would you? You remember chapter 1, how bleak and how dark, and yet look, here it is. In the end, it did go this way. Each detail is meant to show us this. And yet, church, again, God never showed up in a burning bush. He never parted the sea. He never rained down fire from heaven. He never sent plagues, none of it. He did all of this through two women who turned back to him and his people and through one worthy man who cared for them and redeemed them, which I think puts a blinding spotlight on the point of this chapter and, frankly, the whole book, that God uses ordinary life circumstances to redeem us in surprisingly sweet ways surprisingly sweet ways. Now, the reversal of Ruth and Naomi's loss here is evidence enough that this is true. It's an incredibly sweet story, but it turns out God was doing far more than just that. Uh, you, you might say the sweetness of Ruth and Naomi's redemption, frankly, was far, far more surprising and far, far more sweet than they even realized that day that Obed was born, possibly than they even realized in their lifetimes. Because the last thing the author tells us about this little baby boy named Obed is that he was the father of Jesse, the father of of David. And this is where the whole point of the book bursts into crystal clear focus. This is where the record just screeches to a halt. Wait, wait, wait a second here. You, you, mean, you, you mean David, the, the king David. You mean the most blessed and beloved king that Israel has ever had, ever. Church, this is the real reversal. In, book, in, in this book. This is the real sweetness of what's happening. In chapter 1, we read that in the days when the judges ruled, an unruly, wicked time in Israel's history, there was a famine, and Elimelech's family line was almost extinct. And by chapter 4, there's an abundant harvest. Elimelech's line continues against all odds through Ruth the Moabite. And as a result, this dark period in Israel's history is almost over. 
were just a couple generations from their greatest king ever. Church, all the while, this entire story has been about God providing his people with a great king. That is what God has been doing all along. Bringing Ruth and Boaz together against all odds to bring us King David. And with that in mind, I want us to just just roll the tape back a little bit here. Wait a second. What if Elimelech and Naomi had not run from God and his people during that famine? What if Elimelech and his sons had not tragically died? What if Ruth had not come back to Bethlehem with Naomi? What if Ruth never showed up at at Boaz's field? What, What if they never even met? The Israelite reader here is meant to read that and wonder, would we even have a kingdom if if this didn't happen? This is where I think it helps to zoom out and consider the purpose of this entirety of the book. See, for anyone, this is the story of God reversing the fortunes of two weary women, and that's a great story. But if that is all we see and understand in the book of Ruth, we have virtually missed the entire point of the book of Ruth. Because for Israel, this is the story of God using those two weary women to bring them the greatest king they have ever known, to rescue them out of a dark and wicked period of their history. But for the church today, this book is even more surprising and even more sweet. Because for us, This is the story of God using these ordinary people and their ordinary life circumstances to give us the ultimate redeemer and the ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. This is the very first thing we read in the New Testament, and it frankly meant most people read it. They have no clue what to do with it. It's a long list of ancient names. In Matthew Chapter 1, the very first page of the New Testament, this is what we read. Starting in verse 1, Matthew says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's what we're reading. It's a family tree that gets us to Jesus, and he calls him the son of David, spoiler alert, the son of Abraham. Now, we've just gone through a series in Abraham. We saw the promise of God to redeem all nations through his children, and the story continues here, but it starts with Abraham in verse 2. Matthew says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, who's in our story today, and and Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz. By Rahab, picture Boaz, a little baby boy born to Rahab with these events soon to follow in his lifetime. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. This Moabite woman who had no real business following her mother-in-law back to Israel but decided to come, we don't know, because so that God would be her God and and his people would be her people. She is listed here in the genealogy that points us to Christ. 
Her son Obed as well, Father Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And this line continues all the way until we reach Christ. This is why Ruth is in your Bible. The point is this. Even when all we can see is our suffering, even when our lives seem particularly bleak and maybe ordinary, and we are not quite sure where God is or if he's even there at all, this book reassures us, no, 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 he has always done this. He has always used ordinary life circumstances to redeem us in surprisingly sweet ways. So with that said, as we kind of turn to application here, really, you can see how the purpose of this book is really to reassure us. It's to put some steel in our spine, if you will, that God is truly a redeemer, and we will be shocked and surprised by how sweet his redemption is in the end. And in light of that, in light of everything we've seen, I want us to consider, how can we deepen our confidence in God's plan of redemption? How can we deepen it? I think we see three things in our passage today that can instruct us to that end. The first is this. We can look back on his faithfulness in the past. Look back on his faithfulness in the past. Do you notice all the looking back that happened in this story? As soon as everyone hears, hey, this is happening great, they say, hey, remember Leah? And do you remember how Rachel and Leah were used by God to raise up the house of Israel? Do you remember when, when Tamar, the Canaanite, gave birth to Perez by Judah? Remember that? And it turned into a tribe. That's such a tribe we're part of today. Remember that? And then they say, let's pray that Boaz and his family line would lead in this same direction. Do you see this? The fact that God has redeemed people's lives in such sweet and pleasant ways throughout all generations. Listen, this is fuel for the faith of the saints who need his redeeming work now. Maybe you're thinking, Danny, listen, I, I am looking back. I have to tell you, it's always been this way for me. I, I have never seen God at work in my life in the ways that I need him to be at work, ever. Well, in my experience, and we've seen in chapter one, that, that may be the sorrow talking a bit. There may be evidences of God's work in your life. If you look a little closer, slow it down, zoom it out. It's hard to see clearly in these instances, but even still, let's just take that at face value. Here's what I would say to you. Look back further. Consider all that had to happen for Christ to be born centuries later in this family line and how those dots were connected without you doing anything to connect them. Then consider all that had to happen in the life of the church over the past 2,000 years in order for us to be here today in a church service talking about Ruth. Then just consider all that had to happen in your parents' lives for you to even be here today. Then consider all that had to happen in, in their parents' lives. And do we understand, do we realize how many factors along the way could have prevented all of this? But the truth is we don't tend to think this way until or unless we zoom out and we look back. If our lives are the point of our lives, it will be very hard to have faith in God's redemptive plan. But if our lives are just one small part of this God's unfolding plan throughout the ages, then we will have the perspective we need to weather any crisis in this life.
So whether it's our politics or whether it's in our personal lives, church, let's look forward with a kind of confidence and hope that God will redeem us. He will redeem us in surprisingly sweet ways just as he has done for his people in the past throughout all generations. Let's not be consumed by the next three months or years or decades even of our lives. Let's not let our feelings today drive us to a kind of faithless cynicism and despair. Let's cultivate this age-old confidence that, listen, the further we zoom out, the clearer it becomes. This God uses ordinary people's lives to do surprisingly sweet things. Let's look back on God's faithfulness in the past. Next, number two, in light of this passage and entire book, we can also rest in God's sovereign rule in the present. Uh, I have to say, this book is a great glimpse into the Bible's teaching on the sovereignty of God and how his sovereignty interacts with our will. The Bible clearly and definitely affirms we have a real will. We make real decisions based on real instincts that we have, and those decisions really matter. For example, we decide to run from God and his people to Moab during a famine. Uh, We decide to settle into a foreign land and intermarry outside of God's covenant family. Uh, We decide to begrudgingly return when our options are all out and we come back complaining that we are empty. Then occasionally, we also decide to commit ourselves to him and his people in these these rare and exceptional moments like Ruth, and that's a good thing. It's a great blessing. Then we decide to take matters into our own hands, try and make our redemption happen. And then a number of factors outside of our control convince us that everything is far more complicated than we even thought. Then eventually we go to sleep. We wait and see what God does through others. And after these years of complicated toil and decision-making processes, praise God, finally the light breaks through. We are redeemed. And then when we zoom out and consider all the complicated decisions we've made, centuries later even, it becomes crystal clear God was sovereignly orchestrating all of it. This is how the Bible talks about the sovereignty of God. Well, wait, did we really decide all of those things? Yes, we did. And was he really at work in every decision, orchestrating his sovereign purposes for the sake of his glory? Oh, yes. Every single one of them. Well, does that mean that my will is not really free then? Is that how that, I don't know what you mean by free. I don't know. That, that, that idea of free will is not in the Bible. It just doesn't talk about that. But if what you mean by free is that you have a kind of control over your life, which God himself is not sovereign over, the resounding answer to that question in the book of Ruth is no. <laughs> this God's sovereign will is inescapable no matter what we do, and, but let's just make sure we don't miss the point here. It's that this God is always, always doing something far bigger and shockingly sweeter than we could ever even imagine. And his purposes, his plans, his glorious ends will 
come to pass, hear me, whatever we decide. Whatever we decide. So when it feels like there is a famine in your life and all you can do is run, when it feels like everyone you've ever depended on is dead and gone, when it feels like it's a long shot that your life will have any meaning or value by the end of it, the real question, church, is not, what can I do to fix this? The real question is not, what should I do? The real question is this, will we trust? his sovereign rule in the present. But church, we have something far greater even than Ruth and the people of the Old Testament had to trust in. For us as Christians, we can trust in this truth that the great, 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 resurrected grandson of Ruth, the Lord Jesus Christ, is seated on the throne of heaven He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the point of this book. He is the man that God is directing all of our stories towards, and he is the one that our lives will point to in the end, one way or another. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess of its own volition that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise God for that. And so let's learn from this surprisingly sweet story of redemption from the past, and let's rest in God's sovereign rule today through his son, Jesus Christ, who is our redeemer, who is our king. And finally, number three, we can also long for his glory throughout all of eternity. Long for his glory throughout all of eternity. If there's one thing that's evident in this book, especially here in chapter 4, it is that these people really cared not just how their lives turned out, but but how their entire family line fit into God's plan to redeem all of creation forever and ever. We saw this so much in 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 our series through Abraham. This is the point of the nation of Israel. This is what he's been after. Notice Boaz went through with this redemption. He even says, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. Now, you might hear that and think, oh, that's kind of depressing. Like, didn't he, like, really, really love, wasn't he just smitten with Ruth? Didn't he think he was, she was, like, super beautiful and attractive? Wasn't that the goal? Truth is, he, he, I'm sure he said last week he was honored by that. I'm sure he did. But is this not more sweet than that? He didn't just want some land and an attractive young wife. He wanted to resurrect Elimelech's line for the sake of God's purposes in all of creation. And Ruth is his provision for that. These townspeople wanted God to bless Boaz and the entire nation of Israel through all of this because of the offspring that the Lord will give to Boaz through this young woman, Ruth. You see, none of this was just about these people in that day. All of it was about God and his great, glorious plans for all of eternity. And the aim of this book, I'm convinced, is to help us think in this same way about our lives. It's to help us to recover this kind of eternal perspective in which our lives and the details of the next few years seem appropriately small to us. Not insignificant, we see, often very significant, but appropriately small, and God's eternal plan to glorify himself through our ordinary lives seems colossal and far, by far and away, most pressing. 
And thinking in this way is not particularly common in our age of individualism and self-expression. It's very hard for us as modern people to imagine a meaningful life that is not supremely meaningful now. Now. But there is something that rings hollow and untrue about that, I think, if we're honest. Sometimes even the, the poems, the music of our day kind of speak to some of these yearnings that we have. Uh, one of my favorite bands is, is the Fleet Foxes. And there's that, they have a song called Helplessness Blues. And I want to just read for you just one of the opening lines of this song. And I think it really speaks to kind of what we're getting at here. He says, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. But now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. There's something beautiful about this, right? We tend to think the world just, that's all they want. He's saying this individualism thing, me, I'm a snowflake. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's too short-sighted. It's too small. We really do yearn and long for something far bigger to be lost in, right? And then the song continues, but, but he says, but I don't, I don't know what that will be. I love this. Is I'll get back to you someday soon. You'll see. All I want us to see here is that even some of the poets and artists of our day can tell there is something shallow and empty about our lives simply being the point of our lives. And after some thinking, even they do long for something far more, something, something much, much bigger. They just don't quite know what that is in some cases, right? But as Christians, what is it that drives us more in our lives? Is it our hopes for our lives in our lifetimes, or is it God's complicated, sovereign plan to glorify himself and redeem all of creation somehow, we don't know, but through what he's doing here? Church, what if our individual lives don't turn out quite as sweet as we were hoping by the end? Uh, what if by the end of them our family life, for example, turns out to be a bit of a disappointment? Uh, what if our careers sort of fizzle and just dissolve without much warning? What if uh, our retirement plans don't work out? What if our church doesn't grow and multiply the way we're hoping and, and, and expecting it may? And what if God's sweet redemptive purpose for our lives is not very clear until much, much, much later when who knows one of our great-great-grandkids serves him in some really important way? If we only long for our glory, any one of these disappointments could easily crush us. But if we long for God's unfading eternal glory, the point is they really don't have to crush us. And so, church, as we wrap up this book, let's remember how sweet this story did not seem in chapter 1. Let's remember how hopeless it felt and how bitter Naomi understandably was. Let's remember God's faithfulness in all the simple details along the way, and let's rejoice at how shockingly sweet it is that in all of these things, in every detail of every character's life, the Father was sending us our King and our Redeemer. That is the kind of sweet, joyous redemption we can bank on with this God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the hope that we find in it. And we thank you also for the joy of celebrating baptism, 
with two friends this morning as they get ready to declare their trust in their great redeemer and king born in the line of Ruth, the line of Obed, the line of David, the resurrected, eternal, reigning king, Jesus Christ. We pray you be honored in the rest of our time together and we pray it now in Jesus' name, amen.